turn to Psalm 130. We are continuing our series in the book of Psalms, Psalm 30. You, you know, this, this, this last year has been difficult, to say the least, right? It's been, there's been anxiety, there's been worries, fears, all these sorts of things. And so I thought it was a great idea that in the midst of all of this, that my family should get a dog. And so many of you have met my cute little dog. But what you don't know about this dog is that I actually never told my wife that we were getting a dog until I had already paid for the dog. Actually, it was Phil who one day I was talking about this dog, and Phil finally sat me down and said, you got to tell your wife about this. I thought she was going to be excited. It was a stupid idea, right? Rookie mistake. Well, eventually I did tell my wife, right? And I thought, you're right, we, we, we have enough on our plate. This is a crazy enough year. Why in the world did I add a puppy? But as I sat down to have that conversation, to admit and confess my stupidity, I was trying to figure out, how, how, how do I have that conversation, right? What are the sorts of words we use when we've just blown it? And, you know, this isn't just me, right? We all come to these situations, these times, when we've just blown it, right? We've sinned, we've lost our temper, we've failed morally, and so we know we, we need to address it, right? We've got to talk about it. But what, what do we say? How do we phrase it? How do we speak into those moments where we've just blown it? when our anger has burned, when we've said those words. And, and, and it's not enough that we just say, oh, I didn't mean it. I mean, come on, let's be honest. Most of the time, those things, those words that just kind of soar effortlessly out of our mouths, we meant them. That's, that's the scary thing about those words. And so we say things like, I'm sorry. I'll, I'll try harder. I'll I'll be better. I'll I'll never do it again. What do we say in those moments where we're caught? Where we've just blown it? We say these sorts of things like, I'm sorry, I'll never do it again. But but honestly, we know that most days those are just sort of paper mache words. Deep down we know we'll probably do it again. So what do we do? Because it's not just relationally speaking that we fail. What do we say to God when we've failed in our covenantal relationship with him? God, I promise I'll never do it again. God, I'll make it up to you. God, this is how I'll make it up to you. God, just give me another chance. What what do you say to God when you've just royally blown it? Will sorry suffice? 
This morning, we're going to continue our series in the book of Psalms. We're studying a collection of Psalms. These are 15 Psalms in your kind of Psalter, your, the sort of poetic hymn book in the Old Testament. And these Psalms were collected, put together intentionally as songs sung by pilgrims. That's, that's where our, our title of this series comes from. These 15 psalms were sung by pilgrims as they made their sort of pilgrimage from their various towns to Jerusalem various times for feasts like Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, Passover. And so these were songs that they would sing, they would, they would say as they made their pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And we've seen lots of different types of songs sung. Today's song is a really interesting one. It's a penitential psalm. You you might know the most famous of the penitential psalms, which is Psalm 51. That that psalm that that David sort of sings and writes as he confesses his sin uh, in light of Bathsheba and Uriah. Now, the big idea is pretty simple enough, and it'll be on the screen behind me. And it's simply this, that though our sin be great, our hope, our hope is in God's mercy. Now this psalm flows, as one commentator put it, in a sort of four-part alliterative progression. And we're going to follow it because it's too good. I wish I came up with this. We have weeping, to welcome, to waiting, and then to worship. So we're going to work within that sort of structure. Weeping, welcome, waiting, worship. Let me read the text. Join with me. And I'm guessing you'll, you'll see what I'm talking about as we read these eight verses. Starting in verse one. A song of ascents. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope, my soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. So go go there to verse 1. In verse 1, we start sort of with the emotional context of of the pilgrim, right? He's crying. Out of the depths, I cry to you. The the pilgrim lifts up his voice, and and his voice is trembling, isn't it, right? I remember the first time I ever preached. I was preaching at a Christian college at at a chapel, and I was so nervous, my voice cracked as if I was going through puberty all over again. And everyone laughed. Well, that's the sort of idea here, right? I mean, this pilgrim, his, his voice is trembling. It's cracking. 
He's rattled, isn't he? And in verse 2, we learn that the pilgrim needs something, doesn't he? He he wants mercy. He pleads for mercy. It's not as if he just cries out for mercy once. It's this constant, repetitive drumming, Lord, have mercy, have mercy, have mercy. It's this repetitive crying out for mercy, pleading for mercy, that God would hear his cries for mercy. Right? A bit like that child who, who, who is trying to get their parents' attention, right? Dad, 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 dad. Here the pilgrim is just crying out time and time again for mercy, just pleading for it. And it's clear in verse 3, isn't it, why he needs mercy? Why, why this pilgrim is weeping? Why this pilgrim is crying? Why the pilgrim is miserable? He wants mercy. Because, verse 3, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Now, the, the word iniquities, that's like a $10 word for the simpler word, sin. Evidently, this pilgrim is looking back in his life, looking into his heart. He's staring in the mirror and he's realizing I've sinned. I've sinned against a loving and holy God. And it makes him nervous. It it makes him nervous because in light of God's holiness and in light of the sin that he sees in his own life, he says, I can't stand before God. Basically, he's saying that that if, if he were to have all of his sins just, you know, Written up on that wall right there. Who could stand? I mean, just imagine if you walked into this room and all of your sins just this past week were written on that wall. Would you be standing? No, we would be crumbled. We would be falling prostrate. We would be utterly shamed, guilt-stricken. We would be embarrassed. And that's what the psalmist is weeping over, crying over. It's a sin. Can you relate to the pilgrim? Have you ever experienced such shame, such guilt, that it's almost as if you're drowning in a sea of your own sin? About 10 years ago, an American military soldier in Afghanistan killed 16 civilians. I don't know if you remember this. And sort of at the time, like all mass shootings, there's a lot of talk kind of culturally about how in the world could this happen? Well, David Brooks wrote an article in the Wall Street Journal. And in that article, he quotes a friend who teaches sociology at a major University, who sort of in the wake of this event was exploring how in the world that could happen. And so the professor sort of uh, enacted an experiment. And he asked every student in his class if they ever had a desire or an impulse within their heart that they've never acted on. 
never followed through on. Some sort of fantasy that they played with in their head, they just didn't act out in real life. To write it down, and then they were going to share it. And this professor of sociology collected all of these sort of essays on it, and he was horrified at what these students at a, you know, a, a fancy university thought about just never follow through on. Those dark desires. Those impulses of the heart. And David Brooks ends this article this way, and it's interesting. He's a, he's a secular Jew, but he, he, I think, astutely finishes his article this way. He says, you know, the, the question isn't why do these things happen? It's why they don't happen more often. Because the desires are often in our hearts and we just don't follow through on them. I mean, just this past week, we had another mass shooting in Indianapolis. I mean, how, how, how do we make sense of all of this? If you're not a Christian, I wonder how you make sense of all of this. Is it just another bad apple? Was it just educational brainwashing, bad parenting? How do you make sense of this? Well, Christianity is not shocked by evil. Christianity wants evil to end. Christianity looks forward to to the end of evil and wants to speak out against evil and injustice. But it's not shocked by evil. It knows that, that, that evil is just the multiplication of sins in the human heart. But, but Christianity does something else. Christianity says something else, and it's, it's a quite humbling truth, and we see it here in our text. Christianity says that before we look outward, we, we should look inward. Before we condemn someone else's sin, we need to first condemn our own sin. Before we go out pointing out others' sin, we need to think about our own sin. A a good friend of mine, a a pastor of mine, uh, sort of whenever uh, another pastor morally fails, he says he has a ritual. He looks himself in the mirror and says, that could be me. As Augustine once put it, Lord, save me from myself. Myself. I mean, we we have this past few months looked at all of these different enemies in the pilgrim's life, right? Those that would seek ill on, you know, the, the pilgrim, the saints, those who are in opposition, and so he cries out to God so many times for protection, for, for provision, for sustaining power. And here we see that one of the gravest enemies isn't the enemy outside. Some of the greatest enemies are the enemies within. Those who oppress us are sometimes the oppression we experience because of our own sin. But sometimes when we see a portion of our sin, when we're confronted by our sin, when we really fail and we, we feel that conviction of the Holy Spirit, 
Do we realize that that's a gift? That's a gift. If we are to mature in Christ-likeness, we must realize that when our sin is exposed before us, that is a gift. It's a painful gift. A really painful gift. But it's a gift. This is why you can't do Christianity alone. This is why you need a church. This is one of the marks of a healthy church. A mark of a healthy church is brothers and sisters linking arms together saying, we will take not only our own Christ-likeness important, we are going to also take your Christ-likeness and realize that we want to speak truth into our own lives, sometimes pointing out sin. A disciple of Christ is disciplined by Christ often through the church. That's what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians. Paul Paul writes that being uh, disciplined by God is a mark that you're a part of the church of God. I, I, I fear, honestly, that this is actually one of the biggest reasons why people are fearful of membership. Like, we like community. We like the idea of community. But we don't really want people all up in our business. Too much intimacy, too much community can be a scary thing. And yet, here's this pilgrim who stares at his own face and realizes it's distorted by sin. And so he, like the church has always done, he links arms with other brothers and sisters because he wants to be more like God. Do you hate your sin? Do you mourn in light of your sin? Well, pray this morning that God's spirit would do that very work in your life. That's the weeping. You you could call that the bad news. But there's good news. And it's better than the bad news. Look second at this welcome, verse 4. We read, "But, but with you there is forgiveness that you might be feared. So in verse 1 and 3, 1 through 3, we have a, a soul stung by sin. And here the pilgrim says, yes, if your soul is stung by sin, flee to the balm of God's mercy where you can find forgiveness. You know, in our iniquities, we can't sin. In our sin, we can't stand before God. We are guilty as charged, all of us. But the pilgrim here tells us what to do. And it's interesting, he tells us what to do by actually what's absent in this psalm. Right? The, the pilgrim doesn't say, what you need to do is get a really good defense attorney. Right? You need to, to get a really good defense as to why you sin in this way. Make really good excuse. Go to law school. No, that's not what this pilgrim says at all. He gives no excuse, does he? He just weeps. 
weeps over his sin. I mean, just notice what this pilgrim brings to God. What gift he gives to God. He gives one gift and one gift alone. He gives God his sin. That's it. That's what he brings God. Just an acknowledgement of his sin. And it's in light of this that his tears begin to dry up. Because the pilgrim knows not only that he is a grave sinner, he knows a second truth. And that is, he knows that God is a great savior. God forgives. God's forgiveness is a releasing of us from wrongdoing. It's an erasing of debt. But it's also a a welcoming back. Forgiveness is sort of a two-part play. It's a canceling and it's a welcoming. Forgiveness cancels a debt and it welcomes us back into a relationship with God. That's what forgiveness is, you know, with us and with God. Or we could think of it this way. Forgiveness is the act of tearing down the walls that sin has built up. Do you you remember Reagan? President Reagan, when, when he said to Gorbachev, Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Well, that's what forgiveness says. Forgiveness says, I will tear down this wall that sin erected and therefore you can have a relationship with the other person. You know, forgiveness is that two-part play. It's not just, okay, I'm just going to say you're forgiven. No, no, no. Forgiveness first must absorb a debt and then secondarily, only after it's that, can you restore a relationship. And it's interesting that this pilgrim he is keenly aware of his sin, but he's also keenly aware that the God he worships is the God who also lavishes on him forgiveness. And God's always been a forgiving God, right? It's not, not just that we see this here or that, oh, finally in the gospel, finally when Jesus comes on the scene, now we have forgiveness. No, no, no. God has always been a forgiving God. We see it as far back as God relating to humanity in the garden. God has always heard the sort of penitential pleas of the saints who have cried out for mercy, for forgiveness. That's the sort of God that this pilgrim worships. It's the sort of God we come here to worship. We don't come here just as sinners. We come here as forgiven sinners. God loves to forgive sins. So so if you're stung by sin, what this psalm is telling us is that we ought to run, run into the arms of the welcoming arms of God who forgives. Take nothing to God but your sin and you'll leave with God himself. And notice what something interesting that happens. It says that God forgives, but it says that God forgives in order that he may be feared. That's interesting, right? Like that sort of stands out. Like forgiveness and fear. Well, what I'm pretty sure this means is that God gets more glory. God gets 
uh, more attention. There is more worth given to God as he redeems and forgives sinners. When God sent his son to die for sinners, when he brings, you know, like we sang in Amazing Grace, wretched sinners, when he brings men and women to himself, God gets glory. And so it's not just that God forgives you and that's the end of it, right? No, no, no. Your forgiveness actually displays God's glory. It puts God front and center. Because then other people are saying like, who is this God? Who, who, who is this God who forgives? Right? You, you've all seen those, those YouTube clips or watched the news when, when someone who has had injustice inflicted on them, who should demand justice, and they say, I forgive you. And we just go, where do they get that strength to forgive? Where does that come from? And people begin to gossip about this sort of God. Who is this God that saves sinners? Well, God's forgiveness, it's not just for us as individuals. God's forgiveness of us is also purpose to display his forgiveness to the world to every tribe and tongue, that they might come and say, who is this God who redeems and forgives sinners? But there's a third act in this play, from weeping, from welcome, and now look at verse 5, to waiting. The, the psalmist and the pilgrim is, is waiting like a watchman waiting for the morning. Just staring out at the horizon, knowing that the sun will rise. And he sets his hope and is patient as he waits for the sun to rise. We're not very good at waiting, are we? I mean, personally, confession time, I'm horrible at waiting. I don't even like to text people because there's too long of a gap between when people text me back. Like, I personally think patience in my life is an endangered species. But much of life is one of waiting, isn't it? We, we, we wait for the test results to come back. We wait for that breakthrough. We, we, we wait we're currently we're waiting for enough people to get vaccinated so we can get back to life. We wait for that special someone to come into our life. We wait for promotions so that we can get out of debt. We're constantly waiting, right? That, that, that is the sort of natural state of all human beings, one of waiting. But we also wait on God, don't we? We wait for God to answer that prayer that we've been praying every day for the past month or two. We wait for wisdom, right? We've got to make that hard decision. It's either A, B, or C. What do we do? And so we wait for God to give us peace about which way to go. Or we look out in this broken world where there's unfairness and injustice, and we wait for God to make it all right. We wait for God to comfort us. 
as we mourn those we've lost. We, we wait for God to work in our children's lives. We are waiting currently for God to remake all things. Perhaps most of all, we, we're waiting on God himself. I mean, we, we've gotten those tastes of, of, of intimacy with him, right? The, 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 those joy that you have in God, but, but you want more of them, don't you? You want a deeper relationship with God. And so we're waiting for God to have that unceasing intimate relationship and knowledge of God. We're always waiting on God. God, heal me. And then we wait. And it's interesting that that in the midst of our waiting, that there comes a time when we just say, I will wait no longer, right? There comes a point where we think we're getting stood up by God. And we just think, nope, I'm going to take things into my own hands. God helps those who help themselves, right? Eventually, we think, no, God, you're not going to show up. God, you're not going to do this. God, you're not going to answer me. God, you're not going to save me. God, you couldn't deliver me from this sin. And so, in our impatience, we take things into our own hands. That, that looks like many things, but eventually we all get impatient. We put God on a time clock. Sometimes we say, we'll give you a month to, to work this out, God. But, but what if God doesn't work in a calendar year? What if God sometimes works in centuries? So often in our Bible, when you think about it, God's people are stuck in this waiting pattern, right? This waiting pattern between what God has spoken as a promise and what God has delivered on in his promise. So in the Old Testament, God says, I'll give you a land. Go. But he doesn't just give the land the next day, does he, right? That they have to wait until God says, now take land, yours. And so they live in this perpetual waiting waiting before the promise and the fulfillment. So we can wait in that sort of discouragement, the discouragement that says, I don't know, God, if you're going to come through. I know you've spoken these promises, but I don't know if you're going to deliver on those promises. You, You can wait in discouragement, or you can wait as this pilgrim does. His pilgrim waits in hope, doesn't he? He, he? he doesn't have despair at all. He waits like a watchman, right? A watchman is sitting and saying, okay, I know that I'm just counting down the clock because the sun will rise. And so this pilgrim says, as certain as the sun and it's rising in the morning, so certain am I that God will provide for me, that God will forgive me, that God will Show up. Do you have that sort of hope? That as certain as the sun rising is the hope that you have. That God will forgive you. That God loves you. That God will never leave you or forsake you. We're we're all waiting on something. 
Are you waiting like a watchman waits for the sun? Waiting with eager expectation, waiting in hope, saying, I don't know, maybe, maybe I'll never this side of heaven understand it. But are you still waiting in that sort of eager posture of, of hope that what God says, what he promises to do, he will deliver? God has his own timetable. It's never my timetable. I'm like a ready, fire, aim person. But so often God ministers his mercy and grace in the midst of us just living in the tension of our waiting so that we might hope, not in the promise itself, but in the promise giver. Now, lastly, the culminating experience of the pilgrim. From weeping to welcome to waiting to worship. Verse 7. O Israel, hope in the Lord. Right now, now it's communal, right? Israel, hope in the Lord. For, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. In the last two verses, we see a sort of communal shout of praise. For praising God for, for what he's done, right? This is worship. This is a response to God's revealed revelation that he will save sinners and forgive them. And in light of this, he worships. Now, how do these things work itself out, right? How does an understanding of our sin, how does a, a weeping over our sin connect to worship? Well, imagine, imagine this for a moment. Imagine you're driving down from a mountain on a, on a bumpy mountain road. And imagine all of a sudden your brakes lock up and you're headed to the cliff. And at the last moment, suddenly, your brakes work again and you slam on the brakes and you barely make it as you're, you know, dangling over the cliff. Imagine the elation, the joy, the excitement that you have in that moment. You are praising God. Thank you, God, for saving me, delivering me. Because you're looking down at that depth that you got saved from, that, that cliff. But then imagine for a second that you heard some crying in the back and you realized that you were not alone. You had forgotten that your, your, your son or daughter were in the back seat too. You're even more thankful. Your praise deepens because it wasn't just you that were saved. It was your child. You see, what what this psalm is teaching us this morning is that to the extent that we understand our sin and to the extent that we understand that we are forgiven by God for those sin is the extent to which we will worship and praise God. If your sin is this much, You just need a savior to save you of that much. But if it's this much, you need an even bigger savior. Our worship is connected to that which we've been saved from. And that's how this psalm ends, doesn't it? This pilgrim doesn't hope that he can pay back God. This pilgrim doesn't say things like, oh, well, well, if I just get to next year, then God and I will be good. 
Right? There is no merit. There is no deed. There is no way to pay back God. That's not the Christian story. You see, the Christian story isn't that, that God saves good people. That's not the Christian story. The Christian story is that God saves bad people. That's the Christian story. That's what makes the Christian story so different than all other religions. All other religions, this is how you get back to God, by doing these good things, by not doing those bad things. But Christianity says, no, 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 you can't do that. It doesn't work like that. It's impossible. The only thing you bring to God is your sin. And the gift you receive back is God himself. God doesn't save good people. He saves needy people. He saves people who acknowledge their sin and then fly to the free grace of God. That's the Christian story. The Christian story is all about men and women throughout all of history who have cried out for God for mercy because they've realized, I'm a sinner deserving of death. And the good news of the gospel comes and says, Well, the ultimate provision of that sin is the person and work of Jesus Christ who was sent to live and to die, who displays the steadfast love of God in its culminating perfection in the death of Jesus Christ himself, where where redemption is purchased, where forgiveness is granted, where, where shame is covered. This is why sinners don't need to hide. All because God's son, well, he took our iniquities. He took our sin. He took our shame. And he took it down into the depths and died. And he died that we might be redeemed. He died that we might be forgiven. He died that he might welcome us back into fellowship with him. Know this, that the the, the maturing Christian isn't the one who says, I've left sin behind, I am now perfect. No. So often, those saints that that are your mentors or that you're like, oh, I want to hang out with that man or woman, they just have an intimacy with God. Don't, Don't they have just a sweet, tender soul and humble where they just say, I've blown it so many times, I just can't believe that God loves me and would die for me. The more seasoned, the more mature a Christian gets, the more almost tenderized and sensitive they get to their own sin. And the more they just love and are glad in Jesus and his redeeming grace. As Robert Murray McChain said, and I think it's good, he says there there should be a, a mathematical kind of fraction to the gospel. And I think we even see it here, right? For every one look at your sin... Take 10 looks at Christ. Isn't that good? For every one look at your sin, just keep looking at Christ. He is a greater Savior than you are a sinner. From weeping to welcome to waiting to worship. This morning, I don't know where you are on that path, this sort of pilgrim's path. But I do know this. That though our sin be great, there is even greater hope. 
Hope in the provision of God's own son. Hope in God's provision of mercy in light of God's own son. 400 years ago, one of the most famous sermons ever preached was a sermon on this text uh, by the Puritan Richard Siebes. And he wrote, I'll give him the last words. He, he, he wrote this as he was preaching, or he spoke these words as he was preaching. He said this, until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. That is the summary of this text. Until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Let's pray. God, we, uh, we acknowledge that and confess that we have blown it so many times we can't even count. We have said things we shouldn't have said. We, we have not said things we should have said. We have been quiet. We struggle with the fear of man. Lord, our sin almost knows no bounds. And yet, we don't want this morning to dwell on, your, on our sins. We want to dwell on our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we, we thank you for the mercy that we have in Christ. Lord, we pray that we would leave here. Yes, in a sense, lamenting our sin, but more, celebrating our union with Christ Jesus and the joy of a forgiven life. And we pray all this in his precious name. Amen.